A young man with his whole life ahead of him set his sights on sunny Florida in order to escape life-threatening gang violence in his hometown. But when he arrived, he found himself in the wrong place at the wrong time. After a hasty trial, he was convicted of a double murder and faced the death penalty. Would DNA and multiple confessions from another suspect be enough to set him free? This week's episode is The Wrongful Conviction of Clemente Aguirre Harkin. Fills with dread, probably a murderer who wants you dead. It could be a ghost, a demon, or worse. Perhaps you're the victim of a witch's curse. It's hopeless, you're doomed. You'd call a priest if you could. You'd rather just listen to who? Sinister You were just telling me about a mushroom fact. I was. <laughs> I just got a, we got a postcard in the mail from Mari, who found us through And That's Why We Drink, which we always love to hear that because we love Em and Christine so much. And this lovely, it's a mushroom postcard. And on it, it has a mushroom fact that says mushrooms are more closely related to humans than to plants. So nice. I love it. Did not know that. And since you told me that a few minutes ago, it's all I've been thinking about is... <laughs> Is they how? scream when you, when you bite into them. They scream. Do you know that I learned that plants scream? Jesus Christ! What? Apparently, if plants and vegetables, which another thing, let me just go down this rabbit hole. Did you know vegetables is just a word to describe um, things that are edible? So, are you telling me the Tootsie Roll pop that I'm going to eat? Is a vegetable? No, I mean like plants and oh. plants and flowers that are edible. Huh. So I like I know that veg like a squash is not a vegetable. It's like a gourd. And mm-hmm. an avocado is a fruit. Right. But I think it's also something else. I don't know. I saw a TikTok about it and I was like, well, TikTok man. You learn so mind. much. You learn so much. But mushrooms Oh, back to my plants. So they've done studies that show that plants emit a high-pitched noise that is not detectable from the human ears, but it can be registered on certain devices when they are in need of water oh, or um, or are in, like, in pain or threatened like by it's something. too much in the sun and it's getting burned or yeah. something? Mm-hmm. <gasps> They're alive. And, and same with... If they get cut. Here I only thought it was like a Venus flytrap. Speed, Miss Seymour. That plant talked. Speaking of Venus flytraps, had to show Ella a bunch of those today and now she wants one. Hell yeah. We had one when I was a kid. I had one in fifth grade. Everyone in the class got it for some science thing and we all had to keep them on our desk. And I did not like them Mm -hmm. because I thought they were a little scary. And so when I would get up and go to the bathroom, I would come back and there would be like one on my chair. Oh, that's mean. (laughs) It's going to bite your butt. Or one time, like everyone put all of their Venus flytraps like on my desk. That's so mean. It was their shitheads. They they were joking. It wasn't like, it wasn't legit bullying. It was, it was to be funny. I still think they're kind of weird though, but I watched a bunch of YouTube videos about them today and they're a little fascinating. What you got to do is show her Little Shop of Horrors and she'll change her mind. That's she true. She won't want it yeah. anymore. Yeah. No. 
just all that to say is when you send us mail, we get it. It's very lovely. And mm-hmm. I went and checked the mailbox and I got, I was gasping. I sped to Christy's house mm-hmm. to give her what came in the mail from uh, Molly, who runs an Etsy shop called Pet Portraits for Penny, number four Penny. Molly has created the most beautiful, like, watercolor images. I don't even know if it's watercolor. I don't know enough about paint. It's painted images of Buffy the Goose and Petal. Mm-hmm. And I had to speed the Petal painting over to Christine's mommy. You Christy put the Petal to the Petal. I put the Petal to the Petal. I had to. It, they're gorgeous. The details, it looks... She like, captured I mean, I think, all three of them perfectly. Perfectly. And the Goose, I feel like it's going to start moving. It's so realistic. I love it so much. <laughs> I just love it. So it, I like, held talented. it up next to them and took a photo because it was so cute. Yes. So. Thank you for that. Yes, they're I awesome. Love, yeah. I love my goose so much. And the buff, they're just my little, that's all I've done. I don't have children. I just have my dog. So well, thank you. For, they're your fur babies. They are. Thank you for capturing Ooh, them. Ooh, I wonder really if Molly it. does people. Well, we can I'm gonna, see. I'm going to ask Molly. Turn turn it into a pet. Like turn, like do Ella as a sloth or Simon <gasps> as a, I don't know, like make him like a turtle. half. Yeah, a little turtle. <laughs> I feel like a turtle a, might be cute. Elephant. Be cute. Elephants are my second favorite animal. Oh, there you go. Ella. Elephant. Mm-hmm. Oh, that'd be so cute. Oh, yeah. Um, just the setup for their children's book. So we just appreciate all the things you guys yes. think. Thank you Thank so much. Thank you so much. And we appreciate Aaron Callahan, who suggested this topic. Yes. We we love a, a, a exoneration story. Mm-hmm. And uh, we hate that they have to happen, but love when justice gets served. So definitely right up our alley of what the kind of things we want to talk about today. Yes. So thank you, Aaron, for that. Yeah, I had not heard of this case. And upon reading about it, immediately I was like, let's do this pretty soon. Because she suggested it's not that long ago. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Thank, uh, you, thank you. Yes. Well, I'm Christy. I'm Heather. And let's get into it. Clemente Javier Aguirre Harkin was born in 1980 in Honduras. Due to his short stature, just 4 feet 11 inches. Clemente earned the nickname Shorty. At age 10, he won a singing and dancing contest among children in nearby schools. This notoriety bought him some time, but soon the violent MS-13 gang began threatening him with violence when he refused to join. First, he fled to Nicaragua, then headed for Mexico. There he paid a coyote, a term used to describe a person who smuggles immigrants across the Mexico-U.S. border, $1,600 to help him swim across the Rio Grande. Finally, after a three-month journey in March of 2003, Clemente made his way to Florida to live near his sister. After arriving in Florida, Clemente quickly gained employment and worked three jobs despite not being fluent in English. He had never been arrested for anything, either in Honduras or the United States. So he's given some interviews about his background and so scary when basically as a child in this area in Honduras, they say, you're going to join the gang now. Yeah. And if you don't join our gang, we're going to assume you're in the other gang. And he tells a story about how they made him strip all his clothes off one time. They made him, it, when he won this contest, I think he said it was called championship. It's like singing, dancing, and grades. And it was uh, one of the attorneys that represented him kind of called it like the American Idol of Honduras. But he said it was amongst multiple schools um, and once, you know, he kind of got made a name for himself that way, it was like, okay, well, we can't really pick on him right now because everybody's kind of yeah. knows him. 
But once that wore off a couple of years later, it really became, you're going to join this. They, you know, they killed someone he knew. He's like, they're not fucking around. I got to go. And so his sister was already in the U.S. and wanted to basically be with her. I think he had family in Nicaragua. That's why he stopped there. But he said it was like absolutely horrifying, impoverished conditions. And so he stopped in Mexico for a while and then was like, I'm going to go be with my sister. And within, I think it was like within three days of getting to Florida, he got a job on a golf course. And began, like, cutting trees where you have to, like, climb up and cut the trees. And he was so good at what he did that one of the members of the club said, hey, I have a restaurant. Do you want to come work in my restaurant? And that became another of his jobs. And he basically worked his way up because he was good in the kitchen. So he started as a dishwasher and was excellent at dishwashing. It was, And one day one of the chefs didn't show up and they said, hey, can you help, like, prep food? So he just was kind of a go-getter and was like, yeah, I'll do whatever you want me to do. I'm going to do it. I'm I'm here to, like basically not be forced to join a gang and right. like live my live my best life. That's terrifying. And you're 13 and your parents can't do anything to help cuz yeah. what are they going to do against this gang with assault rifles? Yeah, and I mean he and he managed to escape and he you know, he made it to the US when he was in his early 20s. So he at least, you know, managed to avoid the gang, but it's by literally leaving the country. And yeah. that's what you see in a lot of asylum applications is that your choice is literally to join this gang or you try to leave to save yourself, yeah. ultimately. I've heard of that happening in Africa a lot as mm. well, in certain parts of Africa. 47-year-old Cheryl Williams and her 68-year-old mother, Carol Barris, lived with Cheryl's daughter, Samantha, in a trailer on Vagabond Way in Altamont Springs, Florida. Carol was a stroke victim partially paralyzed, and spent most of her time in a wheelchair, according to court records. Clemente shared a trailer with a pair of young men his age next door to the women. Yeah, they kind of described it as an outdoor dorm. They said that it's a lot of trailers were together and that everybody knew each other and kind of hung out with each other and kind of had like an open door policy. They would just go to each other's houses and hang out. And he was living with, I think, a pair of cousins um, that all were around that age that they liked to hang out and party together and they would hang out and party with Samantha who was also around their age. It's like a community within a community. The little trailer park area within the the city. Yes. Samantha and her boyfriend Mark Van Sant were visiting with Cheryl and Carol on the evening of June 16th, 2004. Mark arrived at 7.30pm and the couple left together around 11.30pm after Samantha got into a fight with her mother about a spill on the kitchen floor. According to Samantha and Mark, both Cheryl and Carol were alive when the couple left. Yeah, I guess they were making daiquiris and they spilled some ice or some daiquiri mix on the floor. And it sort of turned into a bit of a screaming match, which Samantha and her mom had butted heads many yeah. times before pretty severely. And if alcohol is involved, that can always increase tempers. Mm-hmm. 24-year-old Clemente spent the night of June 16, 2004 drinking with friends and partying, first at a bar, then at a friend's house. After arriving home from his friend's house, Clemente wanted another beer. Knowing local stores weren't yet selling beer, and that his neighbors, Cheryl and Carol's house, had an open-door policy and plenty of beer, Clemente headed over, as he had done hundreds of times before. He walked next door between 6 and 6.30 a.m., but when he tried to enter the trailer, he came upon a grisly scene. Yeah, they tried to explain it that the... They had dozens of boxes of beer. Josh Dubin, one of the attorneys, said that the crime scene photo showed 
they just had beer all over the house and that it really was just come on over whenever you want a beer. Just as a little aside, Josh Dubin. Oh, I love you. <laughs> can get it. He's a, it's something not, I mean, physically, yes, very attractive, but someone that's so incredibly passionate about what they do and that he literally saves people's lives. I mean, he, his whole career is like exonerations and just so the passion that he has when he speaks about it, it is, I mean, you can't, there's nothing better. Doesn't get better. Yeah. And then he's got a look, he's got a, he's got a look I'm into. (laughs) I like his vibe. He has a great vibe because not only, you know, like you said, we find him very attractive, but the way he speaks about his client and the case and just the emotional factor that comes in with it that, I mean, obviously it's the worst day of everybody involved with this case's yeah, life, right? exactly. And he made such a connection with Clemente that uh, to hear him tell, like, you know, Clemente tells the story, but then there's also interviews with Josh and then another attorney, uh, Maria, and just the, it, this case has touched all of them and you'll soon see why based on all of the details that that are involved. When Clemente entered, he found Cheryl and Carol dead. He checked both of their bodies for a pulse and found that they were cold and stiff, indicating they had been dead long before he arrived. Hearing a sound from the other room, Clemente panicked. He called out, asking whether there was anyone in the house. When no one answered, he picked up a 10-inch chef's knife from on top of a beer box near Cheryl's body. As he searched the house for an intruder, he discovered Samantha's bedroom had been ransacked. Finding no one in the home, Clemente left, discarding the knife on the ground on the way back to his trailer. Fearing immigration repercussions, Clemente did not initially contact law enforcement. Yeah, he said that he leaned over and was picked up her body into his lap, Mm -hmm. Cheryl's body, and was trying to check for a pulse, but that she was very blood-soaked. There was blood all over the ground. She was covered in blood. And then when he heard the sound, he jumped up and went in the other room, and that's when he found um, her mother. And she was kind of half in and half out of her wheelchair, and she had also been attacked. And he heard a sound that it turned out to be a dog. But at the time, he thought, well, he didn't know how long they had been Oh, yeah. Dead. You would and think somebody is in the house or fear easily. that, at least. Yeah, mm-hmm. definitely. To... After a night of drinking, you walk next door just thinking you're getting a beer and come yes. upon that is horrifying. He also said he was still kind of drunk at oh, the time. Oh, yeah. So he's like, am I dreaming? What uh-huh. is this? Holy shit. Like, that'll sober you up pretty quick. A couple hours later, around 8.30 a.m., Mark Van Sant headed to the trailer to pick up Samantha's work uniform, a task she had asked him to do. According to court records... Samantha instructed him to look through the windows first to see if anything was wrong. When he arrived, Mark tried opening the front door, but it was blocked by Cheryl's lifeless body. Mark called 911 around 9 a.m. On the call, he described the women's bodies as cold and very stiff, which indicated that the time of death had been 8 to 12 hours before or between 9 p.m. and 1 a.m. And she had told him to go over there because... Samantha had said, go get my work uniform. I believe, according to Josh Dubin's interview, she worked at Subway. And so she had to wear a uniform to work. And she said, will you go over there? I have a bad feeling. Will you go for me? Police arrived and surveyed the horrific scene, including extensive blood splatter on the floor, walls, and door area. Cheryl had been stabbed 129 times, suffering severe wounds to her lungs and leg, 
one of which severed her femoral artery. Defensive wounds on her hands and feet indicated a fight had occurred between Cheryl and her attacker. The fatal wound that took her life was a stab to her left lung. Her mother, Carol, suffered two stab wounds, one to her back and a fatal wound directly into her chest, which severed her left ventricle. All wounds were consistent with the tenant's chef's knife. When tested later, it was found that Cheryl's blood was on the handle of the murder weapon, while Carol's was on the blade, indicating Cheryl had been killed first. Later that morning, after Mark had called police, two officers knocked on Clemente's door, asking him and his roommates whether they knew anything about what had happened. They denied knowing anything. Later that day, however, Clemente put his fears of deportation aside and decided to assist police, a decision he would come to regret. Yeah, the way they said it was, he goes, well, this is America. Like, uh. I didn't do anything wrong. I want to help. And his roommate said, you don't know what it's like. Get the fuck out of town. Literally just leave town. Don't say anything. Don't yeah. do anything. Go wherever you got to go, but do not stick around. And he's like, no, I feel bad. There are nice people. I want to help out. I'll go tell them what I know. And he had taken, because his clothes were bloody, he had taken his clothes and put them in a bag, and he was going to burn them, but then he didn't. He just left them on top of a shed. And so he was like, well, I'll just let them test everything. It'll be fine. Anytime I hear, uh, well, I was coming for the American dream, or but this is America, I'm like, this is America. Mm-hmm. That's what is, why what's you about get, to a lawyer, to get a lawyer. Get a lawyer. Real For fast. real, get a lawyer. Yes. Clemente admitted to officers that he had been in Cheryl and Carol's trailer the morning after they were murdered, and that he had thrown the 10-inch knife in the grass between their houses. Officers then arrested him for tampering with a crime scene on June 18, 2004. While he was in jail, they built a case against him. The knife used in the double murder looked similar to the ones used at the restaurant where Clemente worked. When the head chef told the cops one of their 10-inch knives was missing, that sealed the deal for police. Additionally, when Samantha Williams had shown up to the crime scene, she told police she had a gut feeling that her mother and grandmother had been murdered by Clemente. Meanwhile, officers interviewed Clemente's friend, who confirmed they were together at a bar called Pretzels until around 2 a.m., then hung out at a friend's house until around 3 or 4 a.m. Despite this, Clemente was charged with two counts of first-degree murder. On June 25, 2004, he was indicted by Seminole County Circuit Court. Two years later, in February of 2006, his trial began. Yeah, this is where you see the police don't do anything. There's literally no Nothing. diligence. They don't investigate anybody else. They don't go to the bar and say, hey, was the friend lying? Was he telling the truth? They don't test any of the forensics no they gathered a ton of it they gathered tons and tons of forensic evidence didn't test a goddamn bit of it and they there was a couple other pieces of forensic evidence we'll get to that they didn't even look at and if they would have looked at they would have said oh clearly this was not him and i mean it's just a situation where they took the facts that they had and then they shoehorned his story to fit like for instance he was alibied until four or five a.m later on there's more witnesses but and the bodies were like stiff, stiff to the mm -hmm. touch and cold, so they could not have been murdered at six a.m. But the police went. We think that the time of death was six a.m. Yeah, because that's when he said he was there. Like they didn't. They didn't go. Oh well, that doesn't really fit. Damn, it's a very much like cramming whatever lack of evidence they have really, but cramming it in to fit the narrative that they decided that they, when they initially arrested him, they're like, "You raped those women, didn't you? You wanted to have sex with them, and they said no, and that's why you stabbed." 
it's a, a crime like that where someone is like impassioned, enraged, stabbing someone 129 times is not like he he also just had no motive. But they said, oh, you wanted to you want to have sex with them. Right. And he's like, they're not in a mean way. But he's like, they're not really my type. They're a little out of my age range. Yeah. And we were friends. We knew each other, like did not have that interest. But then Samantha started saying, oh, he was kind of creepy. I didn't really you know, he, he was kind of lurking around the house. And he said. I, I was really respectful. I went over late at night one time and they told me, hey, we really want you to knock on the door if it's after dark. So I said, OK, I would. And every time after that, I knocked on the door. So it was they were pretty much uh, the police were sort of um, nitpicking. They were picking yeah. and choosing, cherry picking the evidence to fit their theory. They decided who had committed this crime and they were like, we don't want to spend a ton of time on this. So mm-hmm. here you go. I I mean, I don't know if I've. If we've ever covered a case where zero of the evidence was tested. This is egregious. I mean, we use that word a lot, but I mean, this is a case where why waste time? And I believe that's what one of the prosecutors said, um, according to one of the interviews with the uh, the uh, exoneration attorneys, that the prosecutor said, well, we could have tested all this evidence, but it would have been a waste of everybody's time because it just would have shown that it was him when exactly the literal opposite was right. true. Yeah. Why waste time? on investigating when you could just pretend that everything fits and throw somebody away. Mm-hmm. At trial, the prosecutors provided a motive for Clemente to kill Cheryl and Carol. He was afraid that they would report him to the immigration authorities. Throughout the entire trial, the state never introduced any direct evidence implicating Clemente, either in the form of eyewitness testimony and admission or otherwise. Rather, the state relied on forensic evidence to prove their case. At the crime scene, police had found 67 bloody shoe prints. Of these, 64 matched the shoes Clemente had been wearing. Police had also recovered Clemente's clothing he had worn that night during a search of his house. Both of the victim's blood was on his clothes. The bloodstain pattern analyst that testified for the prosecution said that the blood spatter on his shorts and bloodstains on his socks indicated he had been an active participant in the crime. The prosecution also called Donna Burks, a fingerprint examiner, who testified Clemente's fingerprint was found on the murder weapon. All of this evidence presented by the state was consistent with Clemente's story, that he came in, checked for a pulse, picked up the knife, and left. Yeah, it was interesting that blood spattern and the blood stain pattern analyst testified and said, oh, it's splatter that was on his clothes. But then in other situations, the state said his clothes was so soaked with all of their blood because he did pick up Cheryl and put mm-hmm. her in his lap when he was checking for a pulse. That So it's like, what is this, what is it then? Is there a splatter on it that indicates he was an active participant or is it soaked because he picked up her body? And so it all later comes out. It's not really the expert they got weren't really experts or were not uh, up to snuff in, in yeah. the, the opinion of the exoneration attorneys. And it was all circumstantial, ultimately. All none evidence. of it. None of it was even new. I mean, Mm-mm. he told them all of this. Yeah, and the blood uh, analyst said it had sprayed on his shorts, indicating like blood had sprayed out during a stabbing, and that the droplets on his blood indicated that blood had like fallen. Well, yeah, if you had just picked up one of the victims and held them, and your clothes mm-hmm. are soaked in blood, and then you stand up. Uh, I imagine some of that could drip down on your socks. 
Well, and that's the other thing. It was they said his shorts were so soaked all the way to his underwear. So there was yeah. blood in that too. So again, if something is so I mean, think about it if you spill if someone, you know, if you spill like three drops of coffee on yourself or even twenty drops of coffee on yourself versus you pour a whole pot of coffee mm-hmm. on yourself, you can't if you poured the whole pot on yourself, you couldn't say, Oh, well, I can tell the direction that that came from because it's so significant. It's so such a large amount. And then also as far as the shoe prints, there was a whole argument about I mean, not from his defense attorney, but later exoneration <laughs> attorneys about the shoe prints and when a footprint would be uh, would last at a crime scene. And it would last after the blood had dried. And then you're able to put your that it was such prints that it was clear that it was after the blood had dried and not during the commission. Mm. But that, you know, if your Again. defense attorney just like doesn't say anything while you're on trial, then that argument's not going to come up. Wild. Samantha Williams also took the stand. Under oath, she told the court that Clemente hadn't been allowed over at the trailer she shared with her mom and grandma for months. Samantha claimed the reason for this was because she woke up one night to find Clemente hovering over her bed. When Mark testified, he said that he and Samantha had been together all night. Yeah, she had said months before that at like 3 a.m. he was standing over her bed, and he said that that never happened. I mean, it was definitely a he said, she said And then he said that there was an instance, like I said earlier, that he came late at night and they said, hey, 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 it's after dark. If you want to come over and get a beer, that's fine. Just knock on the door first. And he said after that time, every single time he knocked and he was like not hovering over her. But she definitely was painting a picture of him. that He was this like creepy lurker and that she had this just like this feeling that he's the one that did it. And yeah, Mark said, oh, well, we went back to my house. We fell asleep. We were together all night. Um. But then he also said when he fell asleep, quote, I was dead to the world. Yeah. So I, if she had left, I wouldn't have known because I, so, yeah. I was so asleep. Let's also just say what it is here. Um, Mark and Samantha are white. Yes. And Clemente is not. Yes. And pretty much everybody that was prosecuting was white. Mm-hmm. Clemente's defense was not strong. Even though Mark Van Sant, one of the last people to see the victims alive, and was the one to report their bodies, Clemente's defense attorney never cross-examined Mark. In fact, Clemente was the only witness called by the defense, testifying on his own behalf. Defense counsel never viewed any of the physical evidence or consulted an expert to review it, never interviewed other exculpatory or alibi witnesses, and never investigated any alternative suspects like Samantha. Yeah, Maria Deliberato, which was one of the um, exoneration attorneys, called it a complete collapse of the adversarial system, that you're supposed to challenge every piece of evidence. You're supposed to cross-examine every witness. You're supposed to, if the cops say, oh, well, we think he murdered them at this time, you're supposed to say, excuse me, client, where were you? At what point did you leave? What area? Where can we maybe go and interview the bartender or the manager of the bar or a neighbor that was out on their porch all night that saw you come home at 6 a.m.? You know, who can we talk to? This The attorney essentially just said, you should just tell them why you did it and maybe they'll have mercy on you. And he's like, I am telling you, I literally didn't do it. And he's like, well, that's not what they're saying. I mean, he's, Yeah, it's like, I who mean, are you working for here, buddy? It's almost as if he wanted him to get convicted. Yeah, it was uh, or just was indifferent. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Just like, well, the chips are going to fall. This is some pretty bad evidence. I mean, yeah, that's the whole purpose is that you have to hold the state to their burden. And as Clemente, who is, you know, shocked he's even in this situation. So he probably he doesn't know what his rights are. But could he have said, 
I want a different attorney because this guy is not doing anything to help me. He could have asked for it. Would it have been granted based on the judges that he was in front of? Uh, Unlikely. True. Yeah. That judge was something else. Yeah. Over the years, Cheryl's 18-year-old daughter and Carol's granddaughter, Samantha Williams, had been involuntarily committed to over 60 psychiatric facilities for mental health issues, including a diagnosis for intermittent explosive disorder. According to court records, Samantha would routinely smash her head against walls and break out windows in the house with her head in her hands. During one of her stays in a facility, she became violent when her mother was in the room, shouting, I will kill you. Yeah, they said she got committed. It's called Baker Active, which is the involuntary commitment over 60 times. So it wasn't it was from before the murder and then after the murder, but throughout the time, throughout her life. And that um, there was several comments about violence towards the mom, fights with the mother. Her mother was, according to the court records, the one to call in the police to come and get her because she was afraid of her because this intermittent explosive disorder would be basically she would fly into a rage, essentially black out and do violent things and not really know what she did. And wasn't on any sort of medication from what I read. Not Yeah, not not that I could tell. And I don't know why, if you were a defense attorney, why you would not explore that avenue. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he didn't explore anything. No, no, didn't interview any of the alibi witnesses, like the people at the bar, didn't test, didn't push for the testing of the DNA. That's, that, is, that. that is the most egregious part of the whole thing to me. Yeah. That... I mean, that's I I've never practiced law and I'm not an officer or any but I even know in a murder scene, the first thing you do is test the DNA and see what we're working with here. Yeah, and this wasn't like, oh, this was nineteen seventy seven. It's like two thousand four. Yes. Like the, the the technology was very much available and it wasn't like cost prohibitive. It's not like, well, there's a hundred and some odd blood spatters, which there was, a hundred and some like a hundred and sixty something swabs. It's not like it costs, you know, $10,000 a swab. And even if it did, tough shit, state, if you want to prove this. Again, that's your job as a defense attorney is to hold the state accountable and hold the investigators accountable and say, okay, you need to prove this beyond a reasonable doubt, not just be like, well, it's a crazy situation. Uh, Good luck, buddy. Like, sorry. No, that's exactly what your job is as an attorney. Easiest win this prosecution's ever had. They didn't even have to do, I mean, there's... The jury heard basically one case. Yeah, they heard one side of it. Mm -hmm. On February 28, 2006, Clemente was convicted of both first-degree murders and one count of burglary with an assault or battery. The jury voted 7-5 to to recommend a death sentence for the murder of Samantha's mother, Cheryl, and voted 9-3 to to recommend a death sentence for the murder of her grandmother, Carol. The jury had deliberated for just an hour and 15 minutes. Two weeks later, the trial court condemned Clemente to death for the murders and sentenced him to life in prison for the burglary. During that portion of the trial, Clemente rose from his seat and shouted, They're trying to kill me for no reason. I didn't do it. I didn't kill nobody. According to the Innocence Project. It's so heartbreaking because in his trial, he's the only one that is advocating for himself. I mean, his Mm -hmm. defense attorney is not doing shit. He's the only one that's testifying. So, I mean, he's basically representing himself in this trial. Mm -hmm. And then he goes here and, I mean, it's just no one is there 
fighting on his behalf. And to reiterate, too, he didn't speak English either. Yeah. He barely, I mean, he had some grasp of it, for, but for the most part, needed translation. And so, you know, like you said, he's essentially representing himself, but he it's not even like he's has the wherewithal, the ability to make objections and things like that. Mm-hmm. You're relying on the attorney next to you, and they ain't doing shit for you. And that's already... Uh, a whole other i mean being in a murder trial and you're on trial is one thing and then you add on the whole thing's going on in a language that i don't speak so mm-hmm. everything is being translated to you that's just even more stressful and you out you know what i mean you're just out of your mind you have to wear these headphones in order to hear the translator to speak to you so you're hearing everything on a delay mm-hmm. anyway so then in theory even if they say something objectionable and you like elbow your attorney and you're like that's not true they're lying like you you know here's a thing you could say on cross-examination like you can't really they also didn't send um there was some language barriers with the police that they sent to chat with him that for the most part they denied him um officers that spoke spanish um and would basically just have them scream at him until he would answer in english and he's like i didn't though so they just kept on screaming because i couldn't answer in english you know you can't scream somebody you know into uh speaking a different language so Yeah, so it it was, and so uh, again, too, wearing those headphones, then the jury knows that that's translation, you know, that he's having to have it translated. Then you also just have the implicit bias of jurors of saying, oh, you know, he is brown. He doesn't even speak English. I mean, you have this bias that comes against, I mean, the the cards are stacked against you. Mm -hmm. It's not a fair system that you want to get. And what you would want to do is you want to have a defense attorney who humanizes him, Mm -hmm. who puts him on the stand and is like, tell us when you won American Idol. And, you know, tell us when you won your Honduran Idol. You know, tell us about your childhood. And why why you fled your, your country. Yeah, why you came here, you know, ultimately kind of as an asylum uh, like seeking asylum i can never say that word but ultimately you want to like it's just it, that's why you're here and instead of humanizing someone and saying like this is a person the wrong place wrong time like this is what it was like well that's what's gonna happen so sorry following his conviction clemente's attorney filed a post-conviction challenge in trial court but was denied in 2007 it was discovered that Donna Burks, one of the experts who testified that Clemente's fingerprint was definitely on the knife, was actually wrong. The print was not clear enough to conclusively prove it was Clemente's, an error discovered and reported by a co-worker of Burks. Although his attorneys once again tried to appeal, in 2009, the Florida Supreme Court upheld his convictions and sentences. In 2010, the United States Supreme Court denied Clemente's petition for a writ of cert. Yeah, I mean, he piece by piece it's coming out, but ultimately that DNA is the key that's going to unlock this, and at no point was that tested. So is it that the the next court sees that the first one denied it, so they're just like, we're not going to argue it and, and throw a wrench into this now? Well, so the only way that you can really appeal is uh, there's – there has to be a basis, right? You can't just be like, we don't like the, the how it came out. What you would do is you say, okay, I want to appeal because there's new evidence that came out. And this new evidence is that the expert, quote unquote, literally was wrong. Like they, which this actually happened in Texas, a case I would love to cover. There was this psychologist that testified in all these death penalty cases that said with, a, I can tell you with an a absolute degree of medical certainty that this person cannot be reformed and therefore must have the death penalty which is like 
don't know. I'm not a psychologist, not a doctor, but you can't know that. Like you right. can't know 100 percent that someone's, you know, irreversible. Um, you know, they can't be saved or whatever. Or they can't be reformed. And so later on when you find out, OK, this person testified with this degree of medical certainty or with this expertise and that was wrong, that could be a cause for reexamining. You want a new trial. But in this case, the the courts were saying, well, that's not really sufficient for a new. That's not. Yeah, really it wouldn't have changed the outcome. So that's what you have to. Yeah. And that's what you have to do is you have to go like, OK, there's 20 pieces of evidence and this one single one we think is wrong. Well, an appeals court may go, yeah, no, we're not going to overturn based on that. But if you go, there's 20 pieces of evidence, but then this one new piece is a person literally confessing to it that's not the person convicted, then an appeals court go, well, maybe, okay, yeah, we probably do need to retry it because that could be reasonable doubt. That same year, in 2010, Samantha Williams twice confessed to the murders to her friend Nicole Casey, saying that demons in her head made her kill her mother and grandmother. According to appellate records, as Samantha said this, she pantomimed stabbing motions to her chest. Uh, One of the most mind boggling things was listening to oral arguments and the parsing of what counts as a confession. And like, does this count as a confession? Does the things she say later counts as confessions? And so it's almost as if the system was just like really trying to keep him in jail. Yeah. Like so you what have counts like, as a confession? Well, that's the exoneration attorneys were like, I'm sorry. I feel like I'm in another universe. I'm in a bizarro <laughs> world. She literally said yeah. this exact thing. They're like, but it could have been a joke. It could have been. We don't know. Who's to say what it is? It's, it's, I mean, the most frustrating. In jail, Clemente set to work teaching himself English. He had a Bible in Spanish. And when he asked for one in English, the guards denied his request telling him Bibles were for the streets and that jail was hell on earth, according to an interview with Catholics across the aisle. Instead, other inmates thought it would be funny to give him a copy of Penthouse Letters No. 4, 517-page book of pornographic letters. Clemente set to work, reading it cover to cover in order to learn English. He told Jason Flom on wrongful convictions that after the 17th time, he finally got aroused which made him realize he had finally learned English. Yeah, he said that he just would have a Spanish to English dictionary and would look up words and that he just read the same. He said he called it a fuck book. <laughs> he said, he's like, they gave me a fuck book. He want because he had the Spanish Bible. So he's like, okay, if I have the English Bible, I can read them side yeah. by side and teach myself. And they denied him a Bible and would only give him a porno book. And that, yeah, he said, I finally finally got aroused. And then I just started laughing because I was more excited that I learned English versus being horny, like, from the book. Which, I mean, you know what? You do the best you can with you learn You learn it the way, I mean, if the guards won't do something like that, I mean, I don't know what you're allowed to request in jail and what they can give you. I imagine that they could have easily given him um, an English Bible and just chose not to. We're just being dicks. Yeah. yeah. He was also said that he was severely beaten in jail for, especially for not speaking English. Um, so and he was, was very a, small, so I'm sure he yes. was an easy target. Mm-hmm. Using his newfound skills, Clemente set out writing letters. He wrote to Oprah, who other inmates told him was the queen of television, and to the Innocence Project. After writing 175 letters to various possible places for help, he finally heard back from the Innocence Project in 2011. Yeah, he said he had no clue who Oprah was, and they said she's the one. Though you got to Well, they're not like, wrong. 
super powerful. She is the queen of television. Um, and luckily he did reach out to the Innocence Project um, and they, they came back because this is exactly the type of case that they take where there's a claim of actual innocence and that DNA testing could, in theory, confirm that claim of actual innocence. Those are kind of the two check boxes you have to check off. When his assigned attorney came to question Clemente, they asked him what DNA evidence he thought should be tested. Of the 197 pieces of DNA evidence, none of it had been tested for Clemente's DNA. He requested that they test it all. His attorneys then filed his first post-conviction motion for claims of ineffective counsel and failure to investigate alternate suspects, including Samantha. And that's what Maria Deliberato said when she went to interview him. She said, well, when we do, you know, again, they really, really vet the cases. I want to, the acceptance rate's like less than 1% just because they get so many applications and there's only so much resources. And she said when she went to interview him, she said, you know, what all do you want us to test? And she said, sometimes, you know, you get that far down the line and someone who actually did do the crime knows where their DNA can be found. And so they would say, well, don't test the knife but test the bathroom where they said the killer cleaned up. You know what I mean? Because you think, Mm -hmm. okay, well, I wasn't really in the bathroom. And she said, as soon as he goes, I mean, all of it. And she said, what do you mean? He said, test every single, I want you to test all of it. And she said, as soon as he said that, she knew that he was innocent because somebody who had something to hide would be like, well, don't test it all. He was like, test every single bit. You will not find any of my DNA there, I swear, because I did not do it. And so she's like, immediately, we're like, yeah, we got to get all this tested, especially 197 pieces and none of it was tested. I, I, I dereliction. Can't, I cannot. I cannot wrap my head around it. I hope that whoever his defense attorney was is no longer practicing law. They should not yeah. be allowed to. It's it, it's horrific that you let a person be convicted of death because you did not press the issue. And it's it, not and even it's, like and, they tried and just lost the case. They just threw their hands up and did nothing. And on the flip side, fuck a bunch of the prosecution for not testing possible exculpatory evidence. And the thing about wrongful convictions, if I may just briefly sidestep it, the worst part of wrongful convictions is that a person who did not deserve it, their liberty is taken away. That's the worst part, right? We don't want that to happen, especially if they're murdered by the state. That's horrifying. The second real close second is that an actual murderer is still on the streets. Yes. Yeah. So anytime you have where that's what I do not get when a police officer, detective, prosecutor, whoever pushes and pushes and pushes these wrongful convictions. And you're like, I know it's them. I know it's them. It's like sometimes we're wrong. We all need to accept that there are times I love to be corrected because it means I'm growing and I'm learning. But you don't always have that. And in this case, it really seemed like the police made up their minds and they were going to shoehorn him in there. And the state, the prosecutor made up their mind. The judges made up their minds and did not give a shit about any exculpatory evidence and really, really, really went after him. And to me, that's completely offensive to the victims who don't get real justice right because the person who really did it is still walking free and it's horrible for the community because we're literally all still in danger mm-hmm. yeah it's i have i can't even add anything i agree with every is, single thing you I'm said i'm the most passionate about this because it's again it's our whole system that we have faith in what he said this is america it's the best country on right. earth the ideal of America is the best country on earth. In practice, it's on paper, fucking abysmal. On paper. On pa- it oh, how it great. should work. Yeah, when it does work great, when the Innocence Project steps in and and actually 
enforces our constitutional rights. It is the greatest country on earth. But when you have people like some of the judges in these cases where they were using it for their own personal, she was one of the judges was using it basically for her reelection was like bragging that she got this Honduran immigrant off the street. And at the end of the day, what you did was you put a a person in jail wrongfully. You know what I mean? So, and you also um, let a murderer walk free. Exactly. So I, the, again, the the I love the exoneration part because it does show like what the system should look like, but uh, I hate that it has to exist because it should never have happened in the first place if everyone's doing their fucking jobs. Well, and it shows you if only if less than one percent of the cases get taken by the Innocence Project because there's so many submitted to mm-hmm. them. Which, granted, I'm sure some of them the the people are not innocent, but Correct. a large majority they are. Like that right there shows you there's a there's such a need for the things like the innocence project that can mm-hmm. like work on these people's behalf that just are sitting in jail for, for nothing. Their, their whole lives are taken from them. Literally sometimes their, their life is taken from them. Well, and that's what our, so the law firm I used to work at, that's when I was able to do pro bono work for the innocence project. We in another large law firm, partnered with them to do the application evaluations because there was a huge backlog just because there are so many wrongful convictions in the U.S. And we were able to step in and help and say, okay, you guys only have so many people that actually work for the Innocence Project. We'll come in as pro bono attorneys. They gave us training and they gave us, you know, uh, standards that we had to like review the cases by. And then we were able to just go through and review and we cleared a backlog of like multiple thousands between our firm and uh, another large law firm. We're able to clear this big, long backlog of all these pending applications. And it's like, you feel bad if it doesn't tick those boxes of there's a claim of actual innocence and DNA can exonerate, but there's also other there's other exoneration organizations. So the sooner you can either accept or reject their application, the sooner they can go and apply somewhere else. So, you know, one way or the other, you're like helping move their process along. Like you said, not everyone is obviously a good candidate for their case facts, but then also like they're just maybe actual evidence that they did do it or it's right. not the right type of case or something like that. But just seeing that there was such a huge backlog and that there's a need for pro bono attorneys, like you can see, this is something that happens way more frequently than we want it to. Of the cases that you saw, how many ticked the boxes where they could have been accepted? Um, I would, oh, I can't even think. Cause it's some of them, it's just, you know, they don't take certain like robbery cases, you know what I mean? Where like the right. only DNA may be like on the gun. And then usually we would refer, so we weren't the final say, we would just say like, and it would get reviewed by attorneys on you know their side too. So we would say recommend for accept, recommend needs more information, or recommend rejected for these reasons. Mm. And we had to write a whole like analysis um, out um, as far as like here. And then we did investigations on our own. So like if they said this and this happened in their questionnaire, then we would go and look up records. We would you know court records. We would look up even you know, interviews, news articles, things like that, um, and try to validate what they had claimed and things like that. So figure out whether someone could get, um, you know, accepted, needs more info or rejected because it didn't tick one of those mm-hmm. two boxes. So it was, it was uh, maybe like majority were either needs more information or rejected because especially if you say like me and my buddy went in and killed a person but I swear he's the one that pulled the trigger, but I was there. Something like that where you're yeah. like, I was present but didn't do it. That doesn't fit the criteria. So that was what it was at least whenever a couple years ago yeah. when I was helping out. But well, it's very important work you're doing. I want to I do more of it. Yeah. In 2012, during the period that DNA evidence was being collected, 
Samantha confessed to three different neighbors that she killed her mother and grandmother, according to court records. One neighbor testified that at a barbecue in March of 2012, Samantha announced, I'm crazy, I'm evil, and I killed my grandmother and my mother. A second neighbor testified that when she and another neighbor asked Samantha to leave their yard four months later, in July of 2012, Samantha stated she wasn't afraid of the neighbors because I killed my mom and grandma. That same neighbor had a subsequent run-in with Samantha, in which she announced, I'm not afraid of you guys. I killed my mom. I killed my grandmother. So this was another set of the confessions where the Supreme Court during oral arguments was like, well, that was more of like a threat. And the exoneration attorneys were like, a threat that was also a confession. And right. the, the, the other side was like, well, but it's also a threat. He's like, I'm not saying it's not a threat. I'm just saying there is a confession wrapped in a threat. Like right. there can be two things. Two things can be true at once. It was like I felt like I was in a bizarro world reading and listening to the oral arguments that they were like, but it's also like a threat, though. And it's like, that doesn't make it better. In fact, <laughs> that makes it worse. Yeah. So really, she culpable. did She did two things. Exactly. <laughs> it sounds like it she uh, would tell anybody that, listen, she just bragged about it, used it as a point of pride. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's that explosive. I mean, you do see this in some cases where either something is unsolved or somebody else goes down for it that you're like, they're never going to come after me. I'll mm-hmm. tell whoever was listening. Well, and she's obviously struggling with a lot of mental health problems, so... Who knows what's going on where she is. Is she blacked out during these times? Is she saying it? Not saying, I mean, obviously she did it, but somebody at some point in these 60 psychiatric facility commitments, 60 and she, like, no one has helped this person enough to where this is not still an ongoing thing. That's another way our whole system is broken. That's exactly what I was going to say is it shows another system like the justice system is broken on the one end because a person was wrongfully convicted. But the mental health system is broken on the other end because she was clearly not getting the care she needed, whether or not she did kill her mom and grandma based on the evidence. That seems to be the Florida Supreme Court's opinion. But regardless, she was clearly repeatedly Mm -hmm. struggling and not getting that definitive final care that she needed. In 2013, Clemente was able to present newly discovered evidence at a hearing before the circuit court. Among the evidence presented, Samantha's DNA was found in eight locations around the crime scene. Further evidence at that hearing included that while Samantha was being transported to a psychiatric facility after the crimes, she told police on a recording that her mother and grandmother had died for me, according to the Innocence Project. Yeah, the blood was... They initially tested the some of the blood, and two drops of her blood came out. Because initially the state said, yeah, sure, test whatever blood you want. And then when those two drops matched Samantha, then his attorney said, okay, well, we want to test the rest of it. And suddenly the state was like, we don't want you to test that blood. Nope, we object. And the judge is like, obviously, I'm going to let them test the blood. Come on. But it was interesting that they were totally willing to test anything until a little bit of exoneration, like a little bit of exculpatory results came out. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly the state was like, no, 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 no. We take it back. Close the door. Close the door. And it's like, by then it was way too late. And it was not just, I mean, there was drops of blood within inches of Cheryl's body. And then there was a trail of blood where the state said, okay, the the crime happened in this like living room area. And then the killer went to this bathroom and then cleaned up. Then there was more of Samantha's 
blood in the bathroom, which then later the state said, oh, well, it was probably from before because that's, you know, that's her bathroom and she could have bled in there at any time. But then there was also the mom's blood on the outside of Samantha's window. And all of it. Yeah. None of it's. Why did it take this long for any of that to come out? No, no, no clue. And then Josh Dubin also talked about how on Cheryl's rear end that clearly Cheryl was just so sad. She was trying to crawl away from her attacker. Mm-hmm. And there was a blood swipe on her rear end where the killer had grabbed her. But that the blood swipe was a three-fingered blood swipe. So it would be like your first, middle, and ring finger was a swipe, like grabbed her by her pants. And Josh thought that was weird. And he had asked for her hands to be photographed for to see basically if there was any scarring because the police apparently did not photograph her hands at the time. And then when he said that she was on the stand, he had her hold her hand up and her pinky was fully bent down to her palm. Oh. So only three fingers stick up on her hand. And her, like I said, her pinky's like permanently bent down. So she, if she would grab something, she would grab it with three fingers. And Josh said, well, why is your hand like that? And she said that she was a cutter and that she had cut her hand and severed a tendon on her pinky when she was 14. Mm. And so he said, so at the time of the murder, was your pinky down and you only had three fingers up? And she said, yeah, on the stand. Clemente's exoneration attorneys conducted the investigation that his own original defense attorneys and the prosecutors never did. They interviewed employees of the bar Clemente had been at the night before, who enthusiastically confirmed he had been at the bar into the wee hours of the night, around 3 a.m., and therefore could not have killed the victims, according to an interview with attorney Maria Deliberato. And when Maria and her investigator went to that bar, the bartender happened to also, the bartender working was then also a neighbor, and or was hanging out at the neighbor's house across the street from Carol and Cheryl's trailer and said that she saw Clemente at like 6 a.m., 5.30, 6 a.m. And so, again, it was just another piece, another piece of exculpatory evidence that it wasn't until many, many years later that anybody was even looking into this. And they even said at the time when they went into the bar, they said, hey, you know, we represent Clemente Aguirre. Like, we're looking for anybody who knows what happened that night. And that she said, thank the bartender said, thank God somebody is finally helping him. We all know he didn't do it. Mm. And that Maria described it as a treasure trove of information that they gave where they're like, this person saw him and this person saw him and I saw him. I was outside the house and the manager was here. I mean, it had all these people that were like, no, we know based on the time of death, there's no way he was at that house at that time. Yeah, it didn't take a lot to prove that he did not do this. Had his original defense attorney lifted a finger and given a shit, it would have been pretty obvious and proven that he was innocent. Well, and all the, it's not like they said, well, you know, we went to his friends that he was partying with and we went to the bartenders and everybody said they didn't want to get involved. They were like totally willing to talk. Yeah. I mean, his friend was saying, oh, no, we were like getting high together. We were drinking together. Not scared. The bartenders like nobody even came in here. Like nobody even asked us. I think that one of the employees had told police, oh, yeah, he was here until like three in the morning. But that did not. I mean, again, it's exculpatory evidence that was not explored. When that kind of stuff happens and you're a a possible witness and no one contacts you, can you contact the police and volunteer the information? Will they use it? Oh, yeah. What they'll do is they'll put it in the special filing cabinet, which is the paper shredder. And probably not. <laughs> like constitutionally, they are supposed to turn that over to the defense attorney. But what happened here? They did not turn that over. And that's what you see in some of these exoneration cases where there was 
one or two pieces of definitive evidence that like alibi evidence. Alfred Dwayne Brown is one in Houston where he had made phone calls from a landline while the footage surveillance footage of these murders was happening. So it was like a zero percent chance he had talked to his girlfriend and a totally unrelated third party on a landline on the phone. And police had and he said that he said, I was literally on the phone when this was on the like happening. There's no way I could have been there. And police had that evidence one of the officers turned it over to the prosecutor. The prosecutor magically, whenever the exoneration attorneys looked through the box of evidence later, magically that piece of evidence wasn't in there. But the copy that the detective had in his garage where he was working the case on his own, that piece of evidence was in there. So it's like, what do you do when you're like the policeman? You're like, I turned this evidence over to my boss. Surely they'll use it. Surely they'll give it to the defense attorney. And they don't. That's in the innocence files. I think it's one of the last episodes. I think there's like nine episodes. It's episode like eight or nine um, and it happened in Houston. So you see cases like that where, in this case, the the police had obviously talked to a couple people who alibied him. And the state took that, you know, they reported to the state. And the state said, well, it doesn't matter because he murdered him at 6 a.m. So it doesn't matter that Jamie said they were there. Despite forensic evidence, like, that's impossible. Can you, as a witness, contact a defense attorney that's... Can you like do contact that? his defense attorney? Yeah. They don't give a shit. Like this guy didn't. I mean, no, he, but I mean, just like in cases in general. Yeah, I mean, you could say, "Hey, I want to come forward." I mean, you would probably tell Clemente, "Who who can I talk to? Like, who's representing you? I want to let them know that I'm willing to testify." But if your defense attorney doesn't call any witnesses, it doesn't matter. It doesn't get on the record. Yeah, no, I because, just meant in general. I've, oh yeah, for about sure. You, with other cases. Well, what you should do is definitely let the police and the prosecutors know. And then if the system, big, 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 if, if the system's working right, they have a, con- like, it's the defendant's constitutional right to have all of the exculpatory evidence discovered to them, like given to them. Does that always happen? No. Mm. Finally, on October 27th, 2016, the Florida Supreme Court reversed the lower court's denial of a new trial. Both Clemente's convictions and his death sentence were vacated. The court also ordered for Clemente to receive a new trial. The opinion was unanimous, with all seven justices voting together. The opinion drove its point home, stating, Adding the newly discovered evidence to the picture changes the focus entirely. No longer is Clemente the creepy figure who appears over Samantha's bed in the middle of the night. He is now the scapegoat for her crimes. The prosecutors would not give up. Rather than pursue Samantha for the heinous crimes, the state chose to once again put Clemente on trial. The process began in October of 2018, with jury selection. Before trial could begin, the prosecution suffered two major setbacks. First, Samantha confessed under oath that she sometimes forgot what she did while in an agitated state, thereby indicating it was possible that she committed the crimes. Then Mark Van Sant's current wife came forward, swearing in an affidavit that Mark admitted to her that Samantha had woken him up the night of the murders, telling him she had a bad feeling about her mother. When Mark offered to drive her over there, Samantha declined, saying she would take a cab. She then told him he should go by the trailer in the morning to get her laundry and crawled out of his bedroom window. This destroyed Samantha's alibi that she had been with Mark all night. Yeah, from day one, Mark said, we went home together, I fell asleep, I was totally asleep all night, so I think she was next to me, and I woke up and she was next to me. So she was with me all night. But then his his wife's like, he told me she just walked out of the window in the middle of the night. Mm-hmm. 
And then there After was also- saying, I've got a bad feeling. I mean, wouldn't you question, like, where are you going? Why are you crawling out the window in the middle of the night? And and again, his he's been proven to be what they, Marie Deliberato uh, described him as a pathological liar, that they pulled all of his jailhouse calls for like a 12-month period, and there were so many inconsistencies. And then they eventually just on this, like, they just eventually under oath said, did you or did you not lie? And he's like, yeah, I lied. I lie about everything. And that's and so- how they found the... Even this is they heard on a call to his wife, he indicated that he had told her information about Samantha. And so they went to the wife and she was like, yeah, I'll, I'll tell you. Um, so so the prosecution at this point, you're like, OK, we're fucked. Well, and actually, this is a second start to the trial because October 2018 is when the jury selection eventually got rolling. But back in February before that, there was a ton of issues with the attorney or with the judge that was supposed to preside over this case that she almost had like a vendetta and requested to be the judge over this case, despite her death penalty credentials expiring. And Josh Dubin said that they clashed and he felt really guilty because he would object to everything because she just didn't know the law. She was terrible. And he said he felt really bad and he thought Clemente was going to fire him. And he said Clemente leaned over to him and said, she's trying to kill me. Do whatever you have to do. He's like, fight her. Please keep doing this. Please keep going. To the point that it was eventually had to be a mistrial. And so then later that year is when they started with um, jury selection. It was a couple months later because it was this such, such a biased judge is what they described her as. Josh, Josh it was the same judge that had convicted him the first time. Yeah. And it's like and also he said Josh Dubin, which I didn't really look into it, said she was the judge for the Trayvon Martin case and that she initially refused to recuse herself despite the fact that her husband was on the defense team for George Zimmerman. So something like that. Yeah, I remember that happening. That is a significant conflict of interest Mm -hmm. and it kind of had to be a push from the media, I think, to to get her to recuse herself. So and I believe that is the same judge Maria Deliberato said was using Clemente's case as a way to uh, bolster her election prospects yes. for a different judgeship. And then also had Clemente mentioned in an interview that I think they asked if she'd ever gotten a ticket or been arrested or something. And she had gotten several tickets and just, it wasn't that she got tickets that it was bad. It was that then she said, no, I've never gotten a ticket. And it was like, she had gotten a ticket that day. So it just, all these stories go to build this case that this was a, a judge that was maybe uh, had some issues with telling the truth, had some issues with conflicts of interest, and wanted to this glory of being the one that sent this guy mm-hmm. to the death penalty. And also didn't want to be proven wrong. Correct. I mean, she, yes. had, she had been the judge on the first case and didn't want to now um, have that overturned. So, yeah, there was definitely a conflict of interest, and she was very biased to the case. So, And then the new judge, Josh Dubin, said was phenomenal and, and really just listened to the evidence. He's like, we don't want somebody that's biased in our favor. We also just don't want someone that's right. biased in the other favor. We just want a neutral jurist. That's what every judge should be. That's what Judge Christie is, you guys. Thank <laughs> Just you. A neutral, unbiased jurist, but that you'll listen to the facts and then make an assessment based on that and not come in with this preconceived, I'm not going to get overturned. Like, I'll show you. Mm-hmm. The prosecutors declined to move forward, but waited to announce this decision until they could secure an immigration hold on Clemente, meaning he would not walk free. His exoneration attorneys eventually secured an immigration bond so that Clemente could be released. Finally, after spending more than 14 years behind bars for a crime he did not commit, Clemente was able to return home to his family and friends. The really rough thing was that they said that the Supreme Court decision was announced on a Thursday, which was normally they took like something over 20 months to, to announce their decisions. But the, this Supreme Court decision came out like six months later. It was 
really quickly. And so when he initially was exonerated the first time, they couldn't tell him for like a day. And then he gets this retrial. So then he's free, right? You get like overturned. Well, then the state, the same day that the the decision comes out from the Supreme Court, the state says, no, 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 we're going to retry them. It's like they were doing everything they could to keep him locked up. Mm-hmm. So then with the retrial, they try it the first time. It's a mistrial. Keep him in jail. Try it the second trial. They announce a null pros, which is the Latin for we will not prosecute, because they get these really bad facts. I mean, you you get this exculpatory evidence that now finally the exoneration attorneys get a hold of. And still, instead of going, OK, you can go, they they didn't tell the others. They didn't tell the Clemente's attorneys they were going to let him out. They were like, uh, we have to um, confer, give us some time. And what they were doing was they were calling immigration, which they had never done before. They called and got an ice hold on him again on purpose to keep him from walking out like they just did not want to let him go. I mean, yeah, it's. At some point, it just seems like they're picking on him. You know what I mean? Well, yeah, it's like, and they're extremely racist on top yeah. of it. Yeah. So it's like, you know, at every turn when it's like, oh, you could have been freed. You know, you could the, the Supreme Court overturned your conviction, right? He didn't learn. He learned it from other inmates who were watching the news because the, it took 24 hours to talk to somebody on death row. So, like, he's, he hears, like, oh, your your case is overturned. You're like, oh, great. Same day. The, the state's like, we're going to keep you locked up. Oh, we're not going to get prosecuted. Same day. The court's like, or the state's like, we're going to get an immigration hold on you. You know, so it's like. Thank God he had this team of attorneys who were, like, fighting it at every possible step of the way because the state just really wanted to keep him behind bars. And well, honestly, I mean, on the death penalty, the, the death row. And like you said earlier, I mean, as the state, with all of this evidence in front of you, at some point, it's okay to admit we were wrong. Even if, I mean, I it's hard for me to imagine that an attorney with all of that evidence in front of them is still genuinely confident that he committed this crime and therefore is trying to prevent him from getting out of jail wouldn't you instead want to even though you've lost the case you're upholding what your oath and then can maybe look at who really did do this crime so you don't have a murderer walking around on the streets I, I mean, I think so. And we always talk about, you know, prosecutors and judges are elected officials. And the previous trend has been to prove that you did such a good job by touting how many people you've locked up that, you know, you locked up this many people. You have X percent conviction rate, yada, yada, yada. Well, if we as a voting public say we don't want to hear about that. We mm-hmm. don't want to hear how many people you locked up. We want to hear instead, how do you vet cases? What, how do, how are your community lawyer or your community policing tactics? Like, how do you work with law enforcement to ensure that there's not bias on the streets when people are getting locked up? So then you're only seeing a certain type of cases, a certain type of defendant. And in, uh, until the voting population makes that known that like, we're not interested in how many people you locked up because it's, it makes, it incentivizes locking people up for no reason. It incentivizes right. of like, whatever we have to do, we have to convict him because, the, you know, then it's going to look like we lost versus saying, no, no, we want to know that there's a, uh, you know, Dallas is one of the counties and I think Philadelphia is another one where they have a prosecutor who it's like the conviction integrity unit, like telling your district attorney's office. To me, it's important that we make sure that any cases that we've that, you know, that have uh, any people that are claiming innocence are actually the one, you know, they they're where they need to be. Right. Either they're free or they're locked up, but they're where they need to be. And saying like to us as a constituency, 
a conviction integrity unit's important. Not just we lock up as many people as we pick up, like hundred percent conviction rate. Like that to me, as a voter, makes me nervous. Yeah, that you're that you're overcharging or you're um, unfairly policing. Mm-hmm. Due to a technicality under Florida law. Clemente's application for compensation of $50,000 for each year of wrongful imprisonment from the state was denied. The rules required him to apply within 90 days of the Supreme Court's ruling, vacating his conviction. But Clemente was languishing in jail, awaiting his retrial, and missed the deadline. He's not alone. Over two-thirds of exonerees in Florida are excluded from compensation due to roadblocks, according to Clemente's column in the Tampa Bay Times. Yeah, this is another issue with exonerees is that just because you get a new trial and then the state drops the case doesn't equate to a finding of actual innocence. So then that's like a separate step you have to take in Texas. And then in Florida law, you have to file this application. But the day that his conviction was overturned, they told him they were recharging him and retrying him. So it's definitely a rock and a hard place technicality. How was he supposed to file that if he was still locked up and also being recharged yeah. for the same thing. Um, and then the second time they just dropped the charges. It's not like he got reconvicted and re-exonerated and then he could apply for money. So basically the state said, well, if that's how you want the rules to work, that's how they should be written. So maybe you should just write your senators and congressmen. We don't know. Sorry. It would have been around 700 grand, which certainly does not make up for more than 14 years behind bars, but it would have been something to, to when- help him out once he's rebuilding his life yeah you're left with nothing when you come out what have you been doing the last 14 years oh well i've been locked up you know it's not easy to get a job it's not easy to get a place to live you have no savings no clothes no car no you know washing machine i mean simple stuff and then to not even have any compensation for the time that was stolen from you and then due to his um his immigration status too his attorney said he wasn't able to work he was they they wouldn't grant him like a work permit or application and so he has to basically rely on donations. And then um, Jason Flom, who does the Wrongful Convictions podcast, has a he bought a building, like a location in Tampa where death row exonerees and well, I guess just any exonerees can live and he supplements their income. He's amazing. That's amazing. In January 2020, Clemente filed a federal civil lawsuit against Seminole County, Florida. Seminole County Sheriff's Office Deputy Robert Hemmert crime scene analyst Jacqueline Grossi, and latent print examiner Donna Burks. The suit alleges that the defendants failed to test critical evidence, failed to follow investigative procedures, and that the sheriff's office failed to train and supervise its officers. The suit also alleges violations of Clemente's civil rights and intentional infliction of emotional distress. The lawsuit was pending as of March 2020. If you would like to support Clemente, you can donate at www.mightycause.com slash story slash Clemente Aguirre 2019. And we'll put the link in the show notes and we can put it in the description too, in the um, episode description, because yeah, right now it's basically donation based. Yeah, I checked earlier and their goal is 24000 and he has a little over eighteen right now, mm-hmm. which is something. It's certainly not the... 700,000 that he is owed. And we've talked before how very few times do exonerees actually get the compensation that they're due from the state. Yeah. I mean, if you're the state, it's in your best interest not to pay out. You know, it really is. They throw up a lot more roadblocks. Um, They're not just handing out compensation when, I mean, 
They should. I mean, if it's yeah. your, it's one of those where you can't sue the judge, you can't sue the police officers, you can't sue the prosecutors for qualified immunity. So what can you do then? I mean, he can sue, he's suing them for violation of his civil rights. That's pretty much one of the only causes of action that you can sue them under. You cannot sue the judge for that. But it's an, it's called a 1983 violation where you say the state actor was basically operating under their job like he you know it wasn't that robert Hemmer, you know hurt him as a uh, private citizen it's like in his capacity as a sheriff's deputy did all these things or failed to do these things so that's one way to sue them um but yeah as for prosecutors and judges and policemen you're pretty much not gonna i mean the ones that that did all the things that ultimately got him where he is which i would say mostly is the prosecutor and the judges they're not gonna see any yeah i mean no. they could just not get re reelected, and that's what should yes and that's why like you said it's important to know like who who those people are so when their re-election comes up you can make the decision not to vote for them mm-hmm. well so what do we think man again the, and and i you know you look up did anyone else ever get arrested for these crimes no nope. no that's i was just about to say one of the wildest parts of this is that samantha Never charged for anything. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Nope. And why is that? Because the prosecution just didn't want to bring charges against somebody else? And I mean, in- they said in, I want to say in one of the final interviews in the last couple of years, one of the the prosecution said, well, we still think there's substantial evidence pointing to Clemente. So we think we got the right person, but they just got him off. Y'all. So, stubbornness. Come on. Yeah. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's it's horrific that they still think that way, that they still are digging in, especially when, again, this is a, a person who, there's not just one thing that got him exonerated, right? right? It was like evidence upon evidence upon evidence. And even one of the judges that had sentenced him later that uh, they said, like, Honestly, if I knew then what I know now, I would have ordered the jury verdict overturned. Yeah. Like the uh, Judge Eaton was the name. And they said, the evidence I heard during the 2006 trial substantiated the verdict, but the evidence I've heard now does not. So, again, this was as the prosecution was going to convict him. Like the judge even that was a part of it said. So there was two separate judges and one was anyway. We we all we said at the beginning there was a lot of issues with the judges in this, but we wanted to more focus on the evidence. But, yeah, it was shocking that the state continued to pursue this and never explored other avenues based on all the evidence that came forward, especially having the Florida Supreme Court, who, I mean, notoriously, it's it's the South. It's Florida, but it's still the South. Unanimous verdict saying yeah. Clemente was the scapegoat for her that crimes. Yeah. So it's she Samantha also confessed like five times. And yeah. implied even to the police, like, the night or after she was taken after the murders to another psychiatric facility that they died for her. I mean, there's so many. Her blood's It's the fact that she's still walking around mm-hmm. after cr- committing a heinous crime 129 Allegedly. times. <laughs> okay. Allegedly. Stabbed her mother 129 times. That's egregious. Well, and that's what, you know, the exoneration attorney said. When you see something like that, so their first 
argument was, oh, he wanted to rape the women. That's why he did it. And then they just sort of said, well, he didn't really want to get deported. So that's why he did a murder. Like, that doesn't make any sense. And also, there had been no evidence saying that they had made claims that they were going mm -hmm. to report him or anything like that. They had no problem with him. I think they called him, like, Little Mexico or something. I mean, it was... He wasn't from Mexico, but... He, you know, he had a nickname, like they all drank together. They partied together. It wasn't like there was some sort of contentious relationship that, you know, he pissed them off and they said no, that. No, Samantha and said, showed up to the crime scene and said, well, I have a feeling he did it. And they're like, cool, that's all. That's good enough for us. Let's go home. Yeah, might as well. And that's the other issue is that at the initial trial and the initial investigation, police and prosecutors listened to her. That she said, he lingered over my bed. He would wander in in the night. He's this major creep. And they're like, oh, yeah. Put her on the stand. She's the one that's telling you. Well, then later, after she had told multiple people that she did it, then the prosecutor's like, well, we don't know what she's saying. She's just saying all kinds of mm -hmm. stuff. Like, she can't be trusted. And the Innocence Project attorneys uh, in one of their write-ups actually said, this is flawed logic. Like, this yeah. is inconsistent to say, well, we trusted what she said back then. But, like, now, after she's the crime. You can't have those things, buddy. Yeah. Pick You're away. like, we can't trust those. We can't trust all her multiple confessions to multiple different people. Yeah, the whole thing is um, crushing that someone had to go through that. Um, thank God for the Innocence Project and that he's he's free now. But, I mean, with the, like any exoneration case, you never get that time back. And 14 years of his life just taken from him. Mm-hmm. And, and just kind of for, with nothing to show for it. You know, they didn't. Mm -hmm. They didn't want to follow through and, and pay him as compensation. The Innocence Project does do great work. You can go to innocenceproject.org and you can sign up to do a one-time donation or recurring donations. At the very bare minimum, I would recommend getting on their email list because they send out all kinds of information on people that they're currently helping, success stories of people that they have helped, and then also like policy initiatives where they're trying to get um, certain laws passed in certain states to prevent things like this from happening or to you know get people compensation when they have been exonerated. So it's fascinating to follow, especially um, because it could possibly be something happening in your state and something that you would want to know about and you could vote accordingly. For sure. We love providing Sinister Hadiyu at no cost. So if you like what you hear, consider supporting the show by donating to our Patreon. We're a small operation, creating this show for you by researching, writing, recording, and producing it ourselves. Any amount is sincerely appreciated and helps offset the cost of making and hosting the show. As a thank you, you'll also get some sweet perks like ad-free episodes, a Sinisterhood sticker, membership to our exclusive Patreon Facebook group for those in the Rolling the Airwaves tier, a special shout-out on the show, a monthly bonus mini-sode, and patron-exclusive video and audio content, including our Reddit Am I the Asshole and Relationship Advice segments, where we read and discuss the best that Reddit has to offer. And one of our more recent Relationship Advice segments had our jaws on the floor. It was oh. so shocking and horrific. Um but had a, a reasonable um, ending, I guess, <laughs> if, I, to the extent that you could have a happy ending on a horrible story like that. I will not get over that anytime soon. I I ran out of the room and told Paris, I know you're a <laughs> Patreon subscriber and you're going to hear this, but I have to tell you what we just covered. <laughs> it is uh, wild. Yeah. You also now have the fun perk of access to our Discord server, where you can connect with other fans in real time and discuss the latest in true crime, share personal ghost stories, or just post adorable pictures of your pets. We'll also be hopping on occasionally and hosting monthly Q&As on Crowdcast, where you can ask us all your burning questions. 
For our patrons not in the U.S., you now have the option to pay in pounds or euros, saving you the cost of the conversion fee. Annual memberships for all tiers are also now available. Those that select this option will be rewarded with a free month of membership. For more details on all of this and specific member tiers, visit Sinisterhood.com and click Patreon on the top banner. And make sure you stick around after our sign-offs to hear your shout-out. As you many of you know, we recently <laughs> launched an all new Sinisterhood merch store. I was the very I was order number one in the store and today I received my So What Do We Think mug as well as a Don't Tell Me to Calm Down and I've got a lot of hot takes stickers. I love them. I'm so excited to have two tank tops coming as well. Yeah, I shop at my own store. <laughs> I also just want to point out that the store is beautiful. The descriptions are amazing. And Christy, my beautiful, wonderful partner, spent one million hours working on this, and I could not be prouder of her. Oh, you're so um, sweet. It is phenomenal, and we just appreciate the wonderful support we've gotten so far and everyone's excitement. If there's something in there you don't see, hold on to your hats. <laughs> We're coming up with new stuff all the time. Um, there's only two of us, so we can only do what we can do. But we are so thrilled at how I'm so thrilled at how the store that Christy created came out because, <laughs> I, like I said, I was order number one. So head to Sinisterhood.com, click on Shop in the top banner, and check out all kinds of dope shit. We have mugs, totes, tanks, tees, crop tees, hoodies, I mean, just every baby, a baby onesie. My friends are going to have a baby and they said, we need to get a onesie. And I was like, I'm going to get you a onesie. I'm going to get every new baby I meet a onesie. I need to order Simon a onesie. I got to order him one. Yeah. You got to. So please head to Sinisterhood.com and click on shop in the top banner. The best thing you can do to help us grow is like, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcast. And please tell a friend who you think would like us to check us out. It means so much to us and really helps podcasts like us get more exposure. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Sinisterhood Pod and like us on Facebook at Sinisterhood. Christy, where are you at on the computer? I am on Instagram at Christy M. Wallace and on Twitter at Christy or GTFO. Heather? I am on Twitter at MCK versus the world and on Instagram at Heather versus the world. As always, the devil rules the airwaves. Keep it creepy. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for supporting the show on Patreon. Here are your special Patreon shoutouts. Briar Smith. Brianna Lee. Lucy Brown. Nicole Rothfield. Carla Rivers. Julia Petron. Haley Herrera. Bella Morrow. Emily Wigginton. Trevin Woodruff. Casey. Emily Valorio. Casey Frost. Sarah Bundy. Kate Kubota. Rachel Kerr. J.C. Anna McTaggart, Caitlin L., Ollie, Wren, Megan Ryan, Cora Lane, Elizabeth, Serena, Hannah, Caitlin Griffin, Laura, Lizzie Bird, Danica Holdaway, Erica Ackermine, Ginger L. Jones, Tabitha Potts, Irene Case, Emily Farr Rayner, Viconia, Paper Clippy, Lindsay Biddick, Megan. Samantha Brobst, Anna Wolf, Sarah Burke, Angel Bethel, Tony, Hannah Battle, Kimberly Pilatovsky, Elizabeth Hill, Consuelo Leon, Gwen Samuels, Katie Likovich, Natasha Rains, and Jessica King. Thank you guys so much for supporting the show. We couldn't do this without you. We hope we pronounced your name right. We sincerely appreciate your support, especially during these trying times. Stay safe. Stay healthy and keep it creepy. Sinister.